Hello, you're listening to Ames Audio Waves, a shortcast brought to you by Ames, where we discuss the latest topics from the world of nutrition and dietetics in short, easy to listen to episodes, ideal for listening to on the go. My name is Priya Chu. I'm a registered dietitian running Dietitian UK, a private practice and consultancy. I specialize in eating disorders and IBS, as well as being a media dietitian and author to two books. The DASH Diet and the Complete Low FODMAP Diet Plan. And I am your host. Today, we welcome back Emma Townsend, dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor. And we're going to continue exploring how to use the intuitive eating framework effectively. Emma, great to have you back today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Priya. It's lovely to be back. So on the last episode, we chatted about what the intuitive eating framework involves. Today, we're going to take a look at two patient case studies, and I'm looking forward to sharing your best tips on providing support with an intuitive eating approach. So let's dive straight into our first patient. This is a 60-year-old male referred for a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with a BMI of 35. He's been trying to increase his activity, but is finding it difficult. Given the limited time that dietitians often have to give their advice, what would be your top tips for introducing intuitive eating here? And do you ever come across any similar barriers from patients? Yeah, so unlike a specialised intuitive eating service, dietitians likely won't have the time to support someone through like the principles of intuitive eating. And also the patient may not actually want this support if they've never heard of it before. So we're not trying to force them to work through the framework if that isn't why they've come specifically to us. But we can draw on an intuitive eating mindset to be aware of how the patient's relationship with food plays a part in their eating and their ability to take on our our advice and be mindful to empower the individual and foster body trust with any nutrition advice we give and avoid giving weight loss advice rather than focusing on the actual health condition itself. So we might spend a little bit of time asking him about his relationship with food and body. What does he use to guide his eating? Is it food rules or shoulds around food? Or is it his own body's hunger cues with a focus on satisfying his hunger and nourishing his body? Does he experience any out-of-control eating? Does he enjoy social eating, for example? If it appears he has a positive relationship with food, we can be mindful to then foster this trust as we provide advice. If he seems to have a poor relationship with food, this may be something to bring up with him and perhaps direct him to some resources to use if he chooses, as a poor relationship with food can lead to disordered eating, which does not then support diabetes management. The next part to be aware of is the language we are using so we can remove stigma around diabetes and not place blame on his body or on his lifestyle. For example, we can let him know that diabetes is a complex multifactorial disease and it's not his fault that he's developed it or something that he should feel shame over. I like describing managing diabetes or other conditions as the body needing a bit of extra support. So we can, if needed, explain the biochemistry behind insulin and blood sugar, for example, and that his body just needs extra support to do this really complex work. And letting him know it can take learning and practice for him to understand his blood sugar levels simply because the body is complex. So we can encourage like curiosity in exploring his blood sugar changes rather than a sense of shame or failure if they're high. 
we can also approach nutrition education from a gentle nutrition perspective. So gentle nutrition will then empower him with more knowledge so he can make a choice of how this will fit into his life. So this then maintains his body autonomy rather than doing it because he feels he has to or he feels guilty if not, which usually doesn't result in long-term sustainable change. So for example, we can speak factually about carbohydrates and the role in the body and about non-restrictive ways to support blood sugars, such as maybe adding in foods or pairing certain foods. Hmm. And we know also that lifestyle factors such as physical activity support blood sugar levels, but that he's been struggling to increase his activity. So we might provide some maybe education on why physical activity is helpful but then support him to explore why he finds it difficult. For example, does he feel he has to do a certain type that he really does not like? Or does he feel uncomfortable in his body in sports clothes? Does he find it hard to buy sports clothes that fit? Was he bullied or has had bad past experiences? Is he thinking of it as something like militant exercise rather than more general movement, which can then just open up space for so many more options? Wonderful. So Emma, thank you so much for a really insightful answer. And I'm sure there are so many great tips and ideas that other dietitians can take away there. I particularly loved your emphasis on empowering somebody so that they can make their own choice, giving that education and rather than being prescriptive with it, enabling them to be able to do that for themselves. I loved that bit. So Let's move on to our next patient. This is a 35-year-old female with high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and a BMI of 30. She reports weight loss dieting in the past, but has not maintained weight loss, which can be quite a common scenario. Over to you, Emma. What would be your advice here? Yeah, so again here, we want to first learn about her relationship with food and body. And in this case, in the past, we know that she's tried dieting, And as is the norm from dieting, she's not maintained any weight loss long-term from this. So this may have led to a distrust in her body or ongoing eating disorder behaviors. And we know that a healthy relationship with food and body is the first and most important step to healthy eating as giving nutrition advice in place of someone's own body cues would just then create more confusion and distrust in their body rather than empower them And it may also fuel guilt and shame around food. So if we do notice a poor relationship with food and body, we could explore with her what happens in her body and brain, maybe when she diets, that makes the diet not sustainable. So then we can take the blame off of her to begin with. Hmm. Another area to consider is whether she experiences weight stigma. So her BMI is within a range that she may have been denied certain healthcare or being dismissed by doctors and simply told to lose weight. She may also have experienced discrimination in her daily life, such as in the workplace or just having appropriate seating available, bullying, just subtle messages linking morality to weight loss are really everywhere. And there's really fascinating research that shows weight stigma can lead to worsened health markers and even increased mortality completely independently of BMI. And that correlations between many health conditions we blame on weight are lost when weight stigma is controlled for. So we should not be ignoring this as a potential impact to her health. So during our time together, we can make sure firstly that we're not adding further weight stigma from our interactions. 
Um, but also ask about and just validate any weight stigma she may have experienced and is educate if appropriate on how working to reduce her internalized stigma and to navigate societal and medical weight stigma may be an important step in improving her health. Mm. And again, gentle nutrition should come from an empowering place. So providing that matter of fact information and supporting her to choose what and how any of it can fit into her life. And focusing on health or well-being goals, such as blood pressure and cholesterol in this case, rather than weight loss. Adding in when possible, such as maybe omega-3 fats or experimenting with more fibrous foods. And listening to any challenges she has had in the past around healthy eating, if any, and also what she feels will best support her. And of course, lifestyle factors can be just as important. If she does have a poor relationship with food and body, this may even be a more beneficial place to start rather than direct food advice. So for example, we know that chronic stress is associated with poor health markers such as increased blood pressure and also associated with things like poor sleep, less movement, poor relationship with food, less social connection. It can impact the way our body uses and stores energy and our gut health. And all of this has further impacts on health markers. And chronic stress can be a direct result of having a poor relationship with food and body or from something like weight stigma if she's experienced any of this. So this is just another area. This and other lifestyle factors are some areas to explore as well. Fabulous advice, Emma. I love that emphasis on the lifestyle factors as well. And I guess it's really good to know that despite the time constraints of caseloads, particularly within the NHS, it is possible to bring these discussions up with our patients and to bring in these aspects of intuitive eating with them. Can you give any recommendations for where dietitians and other healthcare professionals can go to increase their awareness and to learn more about working within this framework, please? Yeah, a great first place to start is the book called Intuitive Eating, the fourth edition by the founders of Intuitive Eating, Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Retch. They also have a workbook, so by these same authors, which can help to guide patients or even guide ourselves through the principles of intuitive eating. The official course to become certified is by Evelyn Triboli, so one of these founders. And you can find out more about the official course on the website, which is intuitiveeating.org. And actually on that website, there's really helpful information on there. There's even a section under resources with a list of all the intuitive eating studies and there's hundreds. So there's a lot to explore. Or there's also some great books and podcasts. So for example, a book called Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison is a great introduction. A book called Happy Fat by Sophie Hagen is really helpful to understand a little more about lived experiences. And the podcast Maintenance Phase by Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs has some really great episodes exploring the science behind things like calories and the BMI, for example. Or Food Psych by Christy Harrison is another big podcast in this area. And I've also recently released the Food and Life Freedom podcast, which is all about intuitive eating and relationship with food as well. Perfect. And I'd also add the books by Laura Thomason to that list as well. I find those really helpful. Yes. So there's the workbook, How to Just Eat It, and then her book, Just Eat It. And I think those are really accessible for patients to be reading themselves and also just for clinicians to be getting that overview. 
So thank you so, so much, Emma. And I shall definitely check out your podcast. So oh, a, <laughs> look forward to it. So a big thank you to you, Emma, for such an insightful episode. I'm sure you will have helped many of our listeners find ways of empowering their patients to repair relationships with food, to drop the guilt and the shame associated with food, and to ultimately help them build trust with their own bodies, which is so important. I hope that you will join us again soon for our next shortcast episode where we'll be bringing you more discussions from specialist dietitians. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Priya.